Welcome, whoa, sorry. <laughs> Welcome to One Life Community Church. It's great to have you here this morning. My name is Ben, and I am the youth director and the dinner church director here. So uh, it's been an honor doing this. It's been so fun being in youth group every, almost every Sunday morning, except for whenever I'm up here, and then also doing dinner church trainings, which we've been doing Sunday mornings before the service and Monday evenings, and we actually have our soft launch, as Greg mentioned, next Monday on the 28th. So, but I also want to clarify from the announcements that um, there is still dinner church, dinner church training tomorrow evening. Next weekend, we stop doing the training for dinner church, just so you're aware. So before we get started, I'd like to direct you to your bulletins, where you will find some blank space for you to take notes, to draw on, and just help you stay engaged with the message. This is the fifth week in our sermon series called Everyday Influence where we've sort of been deconstructing some traditional views on what evangelism means and talking about other ways that we are priests of God here on earth and what all that entails. Greg gave the first message on everyone bearing the image of God and how that should affect every interaction we have with people. Then Rich followed that up with a sermon on what the good news really is and how it truly is great news. Then in week three, Greg talked about about us all being priests for God and how that influences our uh, the way we talk to people and how we should be spreading encouragement and mercy to the people around us. And then last week, Greg gave an amazing message on following the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I think this sermon series is coming at a great time in the life of one life, especially as we are starting the dinner church, because these all speak directly to what we're doing at dinner church and also just speak to our lives in general. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to the other sermons, I highly encourage you to go to onelifeseattle.org Go to media, and then there will be sermon downloads there, and you can give them a a listen. So today, we're going to talk about why knowing the people in our neighborhood is important, or the people in our area of influence, why it is important. Then we'll look at different ways we can do this better. But first, let's start off in prayer. God, um, thank you so much for this beautiful, beautiful day. Thank you for summer. And uh, just how beautiful it is in the Northwest. Thank you for awesome things you've created, like solar eclipses and the one that's happening tomorrow. And pray be with everyone who's traveling for that. I pray that um, it would just all be safe and that everyone have a blast. And I pray for us as we talk about knowing you and knowing the people around us. And I pray that you'd speak to us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think all of us would agree that loving our neighbors is important. The biggest commandment, God says, or Jesus says, is love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself. But I want to talk more in depth about what loving somebody means. So if you have your Bible on you, please turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. And if you don't have your Bible on you, I will ha- we also have it up on the screen. So that is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This passage takes place at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a series of messages, a long sermon pretty much that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, and this happens at the very end. The Sermon on the Mount, to me, is probably the most beautiful part of the Bible. It's an incredible uh, passage, yet very, very convicting. If you read it, you will always feel convicted afterwards. What's really interesting to me is this first part. In verses 21 through 23, we're presented with somewhat of a problem. See, we have these disciples who say, Lord, Lord, and then perform incredible deeds. They exercise demons, they're prophesying, and they're performing other mighty works, and it says, in his name. Now, you'd only do something in somebody's name if you recognize that they had authority. And if you're doing something miraculous and, you were, if you're, and you're doing it in somebody's name, you probably think that they are more than just a normal human being. And then combine that with the fact that they call him Lord, Lord, twice. It seems as though these disciples are most likely acknowledging his divinity. Now, whether or not they were acknowledging him as the son of God and the son of the one true God as we do, I don't know. But they seem to be acknowledging as more than just a regular human being. And yet, Jesus says, that's not enough. Why? Because you never knew me. This word for know that Jesus, is u- Jesus uses in Greek is gnosko. And I was looking up what that meant, and in R.T. France's commentary on Matthew, he says this of the word gnosko. In biblical literature, to know is more a matter of relationship than of intellectual attainment. It is personal rather than formal. I'll read that again. In biblical literature, to know is more a matter of relationship than of intellectual attainment. It is personal rather than formal. So, for example, I could say that I know there is a Chinese restaurant across from One Life called Wong's, and I've heard that has good food for a decent price. Now, I've never actually been in it, so I don't actually know it. I don't truly know. I don't gnosko it. Gnosko means to have an experiential knowledge. This word means that there's a relationship between you and the person or thing that you're talking about, that you know. In fact, just to show the depth of the word, in many times uh, in the New Testament and Old Testament, whenever they, they use it as an idiom for sexual intercourse, to know somebody. Now, that might sound a little weird, <laughs> but what I'm trying to point out is that Jesus has called us into a deep, deep, intimate, experiential relationship with him. He's saying there's a difference between saying you know him and doing some works for him, and truly, truly being in relationship with him. In fact, Dan Seeger spoke on this very thing, I think, five, six weeks ago. He talked about how we can say we're a follower of Jesus, and we sort of view it as like, sort of like an Instagram or Twitter account where we follow it. But we're not really in relationship with them. And I'd like to take this one step further. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus has asked what the number one commandment is, as we just talked about a few minutes ago. And he says, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So once again, he's saying, Know God. Love him with your entire being. But as many of you know, even though he was asked for one commandment, he goes on to another one and says, to love our neighbors as ourselves. I would like to say and challenge you that to love our neighbors is more than just knowing in the way I know that Wong's is there. It means knowing in an intimate way, being living life alongside them, knowing them deeply. Jesus shows us that being in relationship with him doesn't mean knowing him superficially. It means experiencing life with him. And I would say that's the same thing for the people in our area of influence. We need to be good listeners, people who are present in the lives of those around us. Then 
we can say that we truly know them. Greg shared stories of when he was at his 30-year high school reunion a few weeks ago and how he was able to speak encouragement into the people's lives around him. He talked about how sometimes he didn't really want to be present, specifically in one conversation. He didn't really want to listen, but he really felt the Holy Spirit telling him he needed to. And from that, it bore fruit. He was able to encourage people to speak mercy into their lives. Imagine what would happen if we all just focused on being present in somebody's life. Not thinking about work or sports or what we're going to say next. Or not thinking about a formula on how to get this person to come to Jesus in this conversation. What would happen if we just listened with our entire being? I think we would develop naturally strong and deep relationships that would encourage the person that we're talking to and also the person who's talking with us. Jesus goes on uh, in the rest of this passage in verses 24 through 27 and illustrates what happens when our relationship doesn't have a solid foundation. He talks about uh, things being built on sand and on rock. And I'd like to say that a relationship that's built on a solid foundation, one built on rock, one in which we truly know them and recognize the image of God in them will be a deep relationship and one in which we can encourage and spread the mercy of Christ. And we, in turn, can be encouraged and taught more about being a follower of Christ. You know, I, when I was in Africa before coming here, I came here about a year ago to Seattle, and I was in an entirely Islamic region of Africa. I lived in one town for a year, and then I moved about a four-hour drive away to another town. Same language, same people group. And while I was there, I, w- I moved into this house in this neighborhood. And I really wanted to get to know the people in my neighborhood and develop relationships. So I started walking around like, hey, where is a place I can just invest a lot of time in? And I was praying, walking around. I ended up feeling drawn to this place called Red Sea, which was a hotel slash restaurant. A lot of the places there were hotels and restaurants. And so I started hanging out there. And at first it was a bit awkward because I was the only person uh, that was a Westerner in that pretty much probably a few mile radius around me. And I definitely stood out. And I would sit there and it was awkward, it was uncomfortable. And sometimes people wouldn't talk to me, but usually when they found out I spoke their language, they'd get really excited and talk to me. And I just kept on going back there. Like four nights a week, I'd bring a book, I'd read, I'd talk with people sometimes. And then over time, I got to know people really, really well. And in fact, the owner of the restaurant and hotel became a good friend of mine. And then we found out that we lived really close to each other, and we lived about 20 minutes away from the 20-minute walk away from this place. And so every night, I would go there late to late and eat with them. We'd all eat together and talk and just share life together. And then around 10.30 or so, he would uh, be ready to close it up. So I'd help him close it up, and then we would walk back to our house together, and we'd uh, hold our hands because that's what men have to do. You hold hands as you're walking. And so we'd talk, and we'd go back to the house, and his house was before mine. But uh, he always would drop me off at my house. He would refuse to let me drop him off at his house. And so sometimes we'd actually get to my house, and I'd be like, all right, let's turn around and drop you off. And he'd be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's just, I just want to show like how gracious and hospitable people there were. But I had a good relationship with them. And then I eventually, after a year, the lease was up at my house. And I was like, I don't really want to stay here for the next, the last three months of my time here. I, I'd rather move into his hotel. Now, this hotel would not be allowed to exist in America. It was uh, not, it would not meet our cleanliness codes and um, just, yeah, it would not be allowed to exist here. And if it did, nobody would go to it probably. But there, it was a nice hotel. And so I asked if I could stay there. And he was like, sure, yeah, you're my friend. He's like, I'll give you a good discount. You can stay there for your last few months here. And so I stayed in a little tiny room with a bed with just enough space next to the bed for me to get changed in pretty much. And I shared a hole in the ground with about 20 other guys. And it was the best time of my life. It was amazing. 
every night I was up till super late talking with people, sharing life with people. I went to my friend's Afartan Bah, which means the 40 days, after a baby's turned 40 days old, and they uh, introduce him to their family, and they tell them his name. They don't tell anybody the name of the child until after 40 days. And I, I even went to a funeral once. I went to a wedding. And I was up late every night talking about Jesus, talking about Muhammad, reading the Bible, reading the Quran, and we were in deep, deep discussions every night. And in fact, Ramadan occurred while I was there. And so my source of food became non-existent <laughs> and water. So I'd like to say I actually did Ramadan, but I didn't actually fast during Ramadan uh, because it's just very challenging. It's hot. <laughs> but I didn't fast during Ramadan, but I did break the fast with them every evening. And it was just the best three months of my life. I loved it. It was so fun. And then I remember one night we had eaten dinner together. There was like four or five of us. And it was about 8.30 in the evening. And this restaurant's open to the streets. And somebody um, walked in, an older gentleman, dressed in like traditional outfits. And he actually had a saber on his side because that's what a traditional outfit you'd carry, like like a dagger almost like that long. And he walks in, he had a big red beard. And he just starts berating me and yelling at me and saying all these things about how I don't care about them how uh, I'm, uh, you know, like I'm re- representing Western influences in America, da, 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 all these things. I'm a Christian. I'm evil. All these things. And then it was really awkward. And he was just going on for a couple minutes, and he sped at me. And immediately, everyone jumped up. And now what's surprising about this is, in that culture, they have a high, high respect for an elderly person. And this person was elderly. And they also have an even higher respect for somebody who's a religious leader. And this guy was a leader in a, in, a, in a mosque right outside the town. And he was in town to go to the hospital. And so I, to be honest, I was really nervous during that time. Because you hear a lot of stories, specifically about the people group I was living amongst, about it being challenging and being very radical and uh, not the easiest time. And so during those times, I remember when he was going after me, I was like, oh boy. I was like, this could be the moment where everyone turns on me. <laughs> but no. They stood up for me and they said, no, that's not what Ben is. He came to my Afartan Bah. He came to the, the, the party I had for my baby. He, he was there at that wedding for our, a cousin of mine. No, he's our friend. Yeah, we talk about Jesus. But we're just sharing life together. And then they actually politely escorted him out. And I couldn't believe it. It was such a cool experience. Because I saw that I had a true relationship with the people around me. I think many of the people, many of us who have grown up in church or have been involved in a church for a number of years, have experienced the awkward evangelism outreaches. We're told, you need to share the good news, and that's true. But unfortunately, our ideas of how to share the good news have totally failed, or typically totally fail. We go up to somebody, and we have this this formula. There's a project that we have in mind. We're like, all right, we just got to lead them through this. If they say this, and I go to this. If they say that, then I go to this saying right here. And then typically the person doesn't respond well. They feel uncomfortable. You feel really uncomfortable. And then they either reject you or they just think of an excuse, you know, I have to go to the dentist or something. And then you're like, whoa, well, that failed. What happened there? <laughs> like, that didn't feel right. <laughs> so what do you do? Most people probably continue and try a few more times. Then after failing a few more times, they think, well, this must not be what God wants us to do. God doesn't want us sharing the good news. And then they stop. Or there's some people who say, oh, man, you know, that's just not my gifting. I'm really bad at it. So I'm just going to leave that to other people to share the good news. That's just not my thing. And I would say both those are wrong. I think sharing the good news is vital. And I think all of us have been called to share the good news. I just think the way we've done it in the past hasn't worked out very well. When I was on the team in East Africa, one of the things of big value we had was living life alongside the people around us. 
So that meant going to the weddings, going to the funerals. It meant being there for parties for their babies. It meant being at the hospital whenever they were sick. It meant going to the electricity office when your electricity was off for weeks on end. It meant having meals together, eating at their house, them eating at my house, having coffee together, just spending life together. One of the most difficult things for me in terms of living life alongside other people is relying on the other people. I was really challenged in this area when I read this book about this guy who did some amazing things and he relied on the community around him. So I started trying to do that whenever something difficult was occurring. Like, for example, at one point, I didn't have water in my, at my house for like two or three months, just no water. I'm like, just my house. And I couldn't get the water people to come and fix it. And so what did I have to do? I had to get like these um, jugs, big jugs. I can only think of the French word for it, but jugs in my hand. And I had to go um, walk to my neighbor's houses and I would go to different neighbors in my neighborhood and ask, and I would, here I am, this American guy, Six in the morning, going to everyone's house. Hey, well, can I fill up water in your, in your spigot? And they loved it. They're like, we've never seen a, an American come and ask us for help. Because I think that whenever we rely on them, we become friends with them. And we develop deeper and deeper relationships. And whenever you have this deep relationship with someone, you don't even have to think about sharing the good news. The good news is part of who you are. The good news is in your DNA. And if you get to know someone in our present in their lives, you can't help but share the good news. You won't need to think about it. It'll just bubble out of you naturally without you even trying. This morning in dinner church training, we were talking about how uh, people 40, 50 years ago were coming to Christ in a much different way than we are now. We talked about how crusades seemed to be to work so well back then. We were talking about Billy Graham and why is it that that worked then, but that probably won't work as well now. And we started talking about how the gospel seems to incarnate in people's lives. One of the things my dad, who's a missionary in Africa, is fond of talking about is how in America, um, especially, not as, maybe not as much depends on where you are now, but especially in the past, whenever you preach a sermon, evangelism sermon, it would be like, you have sin in your life, you feel guilty about it, and you need to repent. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but in Africa, that doesn't get much of a response. People are like, I'm surrounded by war, my, my siblings are dying, I can't get enough food to eat for today, let alone feed my babies. Those things just don't speak to them. But whenever you say, Jesus conquered death, Jesus heals, Jesus conquered death, and in the end of time, you won't have to deal with sadness and grief and trials. It's a triumphant thing. And so that really speaks to them. I remember I read this book called Breaking the Islam Code when I was out there, and it talks about how you're not going to uh, win a Muslim to Christ without, with just intellectual debates. It's all about winning the heart, finding what their heart's desires. And I remember I'd read that, and so it was, it was pretty much saying you need to develop relationships with people in order to share the gospel well in their life. And I remember one time I was sitting with my friend, and he was talking about how he just hated his father. His father had abused him. His father had uh, uh, married many, many women, and he just really didn't like his father. And he's like, what do you, th-? he's like, how do you love somebody like that? And I was like, you know, I don't really know, but I was like, I do know that we have a father in heaven who cares deeply for us and created you and loves you. And doesn't abandon you and is always there for you. Now that was the gospel incarnating to this person's life. That was good news to him. But I would have never been able to share that if I hadn't spent months getting to know him. And spending many, many nights hanging out with him. And developing relationships and sharing deep things in our lives. So we can see 
why knowing the people around us is important. It causes us to share the gospel without really thinking about it. And whenever we do share it, it's in a natural, organic way. And it speaks directly to their life situation, to their circumstances. But in order to do that, we have to truly know them. So how do we know the people in our neighborhood better? How can we get to the point that we know people who are different than us? So I was, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, I think most encounters fall into two broad categories. Those that are intentional and those that are unintentional. So the intentional times are those that you have planned. Maybe you're part of a hiking group or book club or you go to a youth group or you come to church Sunday mornings or you're, you go to a coffee shop at certain times and meet with people. They're great ways to intentionally set aside parts of your life to interact with people around you and get to know your neighborhood and the people around you. One great way that I'm pushing right now is to come to dinner church. This is the whole point of dinner church, to know the people in our neighborhood deeply and for them to know us deeply. I think all those activities are great, but I would challenge you to be intentional about the unintentional times. Or maybe a better way to say is be intentional about unplanned encounters with our neighbors or people in our area of influence. You know, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself. Then somebody in Luke said, the Gospel of Luke was like, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells one of the most famous parables out there, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'll just briefly run through that. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we have a man who's walking between towns. Then he gets waylaid by robbers. Everything he has is stolen from him, and he's left half dead on the side of the road. And then a priest walks by and sees him and moves on. Then a Levite walks by, sees him, and moves on. And both these people are religious figures within the Jewish religion. And then a Samaritan, who is despised by the Jews of the time, walks by. And he stops everything and goes and helps him. He cleans up his wounds, he puts him on his donkey, and takes him to an inn and pays for him to be taken care of. You know, I think this, ha- this story has numerous great interpretations and applications, but what I was thinking when I was reading this the other day was, you know, I bet you those priests and Levites had places they need to be. I mean, that's how it would be for me. It's some like, oh man, you know, maybe the priest was thinking, I've got to be in Bethsaida tomorrow morning to deliver, offer a sacrifice for a family. I don't have time to do this. Maybe the Levite was thinking the same thing. The Samaritan could have also had things he was going for, but he put everything aside to help the person who was in front of him that was in need. When I was in Africa, my friend who I talked about just a few minutes ago, uh, he always liked telling the story about us as, as foreigners or white people, because all foreigners there are, are, they think are white. But um, So uh, he, he would tell the story of, uh, of how us foreigners, we would walk down the streets with our briefcase, and we'd walk really, really fast, and we always have places to go. And then we'd say hi to people like him who are friends, like, oh, hey, hey, how are you? Nice to see you. Goodbye. Yeah. And he's like, man, he's like, you don't even stop to say hi to us. You have a place you got to go to. You got to be there five minutes early. And he's like, but us, you know, we walk alongside the road, and we walk slowly. I see someone like, oh, hey, how are you? Then I take a seat, and I talk with them, and I ask them how they're doing, ask them how their family is. And then I end up, might be 30 minutes late somewhere, but nobody cares. It's like we put our relationship with people as a much higher priority than where we have to be in our busyness. And that was really convicting for me. I remember he said that story, and I was like, oh, boy. I was like, I need to start working on that one. Because he was speaking directly to me because I had a briefcase that I'd carry around. <laughs> so I knew he was speaking directly to me in a very indirect, gracious way. So I was like, okay, I need to be better at this. And um, so I, 
I started trying to, if I had to be somewhere at 1 and it was only a 15-minute walk, I would leave at 12, always trying to create opportunity to be able to interact with people along the way. And now, this is in Africa where it's okay to be late to places, where the, the pace of life is much slower. So I know it's a completely different situation to do that here. You get fired from your job. People will be angry at you. But I still think we need to be better at interacting with people and putting people, putting relationship ahead of where we need to be or our schedule. But it is also very challenging. So at this time, I'd like to invite the worship team and prayer team up front. As they are setting up, uh, I have one last story to share. Um, I, I, I was thinking about this, about this uh, sermon, and I've been thinking about it in my mind. I didn't start writing it, but on Monday night, there was dinner church training. And so we had it, it ended at like 8 o'clock or something like that, and I had to go visit my parents at an ice cream shop because they were leaving on Tuesday. So I wanted to go have ice cream with them and say goodbye before they went off to Africa the next day. So I parked in this neighborhood, and I had like a 10-minute walk, and I was on time. I wasn't even in a rush, but I was deep in thought, and I was walking, and then an elderly lady with a dog is walking towards me. And she just looks at me with a big smile on her face and says, hey, how are you? And I was so thrown off, and I didn't even respond, and I just mumbled, like, oh, fine, and kept on walking. Like, not even a smile. And then right after I passed her, I just felt like, bam, just convicted. I was like, oh, my goodness. Was I present in that moment? Not at all. I completely, <laughs> miserably failed in exactly what I was thinking about for a sermon topic. <laughs> So I say that to say we're going to make mistakes, and I know it's challenging. And I don't really have answers on how to become better at interacting people in the unplanned times. But I do think it is something we need to work on, that we need to be better at. And even if it's a culture of busyness, we can change it. So I have two questions for you. You can write your answers in your bulletins. Then after you've written your answers, it would be great after the worship and prayer time, as you're leaving, you can drop them off in the boxes at the, at the uh, exit doors. It's a great opportunity for us to see what people are thinking and better pray for you if you're able to drop those off. So the two questions are, what do you hear? Oh, sorry. What do you hear? Or what did you hear? And how do you respond? What did you hear? And how do you respond? So the worship team is going to close us in a song. We'll have a time of reflection and and one song that we'll be singing. And as you're doing that, please think about this. Think about how you can better know your neighborhood and the people around you. God, thank you so much uh, that you know and care for us deeply and that you desire relationship with us. And you've created us to desire not only relationship with you, but relationship with others around us. And I pray that we would be intentional about loving the people around us, about knowing the people in our areas of influence and in our neighborhood. God, thank you so much for the good news and how it truly is great news. And I pray that this great news would spur us to know the people around us better. In Jesus' name.